0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow.
1: Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, your host for today's show on alternative role models, rejected princesses, and how a male animator has become the patron saint of unsung, badass, historical women. As Marion Wright Edelman taught us, you can't be what you can't see. And in a moment where we're collectively processing what it means to have anticipated seeing a woman in the Oval Office, yet ultimately not placed her there, many of us are looking for sources of inspiration for our kids and, well, for ourselves. Examples of women in power, in leadership roles, who can help our girls see what they can be. Which is why I'm particularly thrilled about today's guest. Jason Porath is an animator turned author, historian, blogger, and defender of the feminist fable. His book, Rejected Princesses, Tales of History's Boldest Heroines, Hellions, and Heretics, gives us the stories of 100 women from history, literature, and folklore that redefine our notion of what's possible and what it means to fight like a girl. If you'd like to join in our conversation and share the story of your favorite fearless heroine, give us a call. We'd really love to hear from you. You can. Reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And while you ponder, who is it that really sparks your imagination? Who inspires you? Who makes you feel like you can get up and race somehow? Um, we're going to get started with our guest, Jason Porath was a former animator at DreamWorks Animation. He worked on films that you might have heard of, like Kung Fu Panda 2, The Croods, and How to Train Your Dragon 2. Jason pivoted his career, as Jenny Blake would tell us, as the result of a lunchtime debate. The outcome is that he's now a full-time blogger and author, bringing us new depictions and conceptions of the female heroine. Fortunately for us, he's here with us today to tell us more about how that all happened and explore what we can all learn from these remarkable stories. So with that, Jason, welcome to Women at Work.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. So I want to start off with this fabled lunchtime debate. <laughs> what happened? How did this turn you from animator into basically our hero?
2: So, well, thank you. Uh, it was uh, kind of a lark. There was a really bad article going around. There were a bunch of bad articles in the wake of Frozen because anybody, uh, a- any article that had the word Frozen in it would automatically just generate clicks. <laughs> right. So uh, there was one that... Uh, I I eventually did meet the person who who wrote it, and uh, uh, I'll get into that later, but it was uh, 12 Reasons Why the Frozen Girls are Bad Role Models, and uh, it wasn't the best article in the world. Uh, it was. It was, uh, and so I sort of made fun of it with my coworkers. I'm like, "Oh, if they're bad role models, we can come up with way worse ones." Uh, and we had a back and forth uh, contest. Is like, "Okay, well, what what is the worst idea you can come up with for an animated princess movie?" And uh, a lot of them were just sort of one off jokes. I think the winner of that <laughs> little debate was uh, Nabokov's Lolita, uh, which is a truly <laughs> terrible idea for an animated movie. Indeed. Um, but I also tossed out a lot of uh, historical women that I knew of just from being a Wikipedia junkie like Boudica, the first century English queen who rebelled against the Romans and burnt London to the ground or Gingham Bande who's the mother of Angola you know waged guerrilla warfare on the Portuguese for 40 years or Ada Lovelace or any number of these other people and most of my coworkers just sort of gave me blank stares like why do you know that I'm like well why do you not so after I left DreamWorks um, I'd already sort of planned on it this was this, uh, all happened in February of 2014, and I'd already sort of put in my notice for at the end of uh, uh, Dragons 2, I'd be leaving, and that was going to be in uh, April or May. So I was looking for the next thing to do after I left DreamWorks, because I had a lot of different projects, but I didn't know exactly what was going to take up my time. And so I made 12 of them uh, that sort of ran the gamut from one-off jokes to historical figures. And it was not very rigorously researched at that time it was uh, again just sort of a lark and i put it out on the web uh it went viral and uh i i went from there and uh, i got a book deal and uh The project has changed significantly since uh, the beginning. I no longer treat it nearly as as, uh, sort of flippantly as I did. I I definitely am very rigorous with the research, and uh, people held my feet to the fire on uh, some of the early ones, and rightfully so. And I went back and updated them and admitted fault and uh, tried to do well by uh, these women's legacies.
1: So, Which you clearly didn't. We're going to go much more into that in a few minutes. But So is this in some ways an homage to Disney, or is it a reprimand?
2: Um. It's an alternative. Uh, I actually love Disney. This is a, a common mis- misconception that a lot of people think that I uh, am in some way slagging them off, but I I, I love them. I think that they're an, an especially right now an enormously brave studio. I don't think anybody else uh, could have done uh, Zootopia like mm-hmm. any any studios. That was a brave movie to do. Mo- Moana equally brave. Uh, there's there's not been a a movie that had for kids that had the uh female lead not only not have a uh romantic like love interest but go out and and be the hero of her, her own story and then become a, a leader of men in such a way it's like a lot of these these movies when they ascend to the throne it's more okay now happily ever after just, it just ascending to the throne just means you have now have a lot of money, uh, and everything is, <laughs> right. is easy forever. But for for her, it's it's a job. It's responsibilities. She she really steps into a leadership role, similar to how say uh, in How to Train Your Dragon two uh, the character steps up into a leadership mm-hmm. role. But in that one, it's a dude, uh, and in this one, it's, uh, like I don't I don't want this to be a, a critique necessarily of Disney. It's more a why haven't we seen this before and it's, it's a, a larger, more difficult point to make that I've tried to make in, in interviews that uh, it's, it's very difficult for the animation studios to go out on a limb and risk a ton of money and, and mm-hmm. the livelihoods of everybody working there because uh, the, the history of the animation industry is a graveyard of overreach of people who've, who've tried this and failed. So this is me saying, okay, well, I only have to support myself. Here's a bunch of stuff that I would like to see, and I think that uh, there's enough of an audience. I'm willing to bet my own personal livelihood on this that uh, <laughs> right. you know th- there will be enough of an audience to support that.
1: Right, and in taking the media of um, blogging and book publication, you can tell these stories at much lower risk and with a pretty large impact.
2: Yeah, that's the idea, and hopefully if, if one of them catches on and there's, there's more of a – uh, an audience is a proven audience. Then the studios will sort of follow suit. And I'm far from the only one like trying to push the medium forward. I'm. This is the way that I'm doing it. But there, are, there are other people who are uh, coming at it from different angles and trying to sort of evolve the conversation. Um, this is just my my uh, contribution.
1: And it's a fine one at that. I want to talk for a moment, though, about where your inspiration comes from, because I appreciate that you um, kind of deflected the uh, amazement of your colleagues and saying, how do you know these stories? Well, you're just a Wikipedia junkie. Yeah, lots of us are Wikipedia junkies, but we don't necessarily spend our time um, searching for stories of remarkable women. And in the introduction of your... So I want to know, like, how did the feminist in you emerge? Where did this come from?
2: So a lot of people ask this, especially because I'm a guy, which is kind of an I'm an unlikely candidate to be handling this. I'm a straight cisgender dude from Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm white too, so it's like I'm like the least likely candidate because it's a tremendously multicultural uh, thing that I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. I cover people from all around the world. Um, it's it's so a lot of people are like, well, what's your secret origin? And my secret origin is, is my mom. Uh, you probably have one too. <laughs> and my mom was just uh, amazing. Like she, I have uh, uh, seven brothers and no sisters, and my mom raised all of us. Uh, so I think just points for that. Like she's she's a saint. But uh, beyond that, my mom, my mom uh, is this unstoppable super genius. She is far smarter and more talented than I am, and I've known it ever since I was little. And I w- always am- marveled at her upbringing because she was brought up in Kentucky in the 40s. I'm from Kentucky. And the, that was not an ideal environment, shall we say, for right. a strong-minded woman who was you know, iconoclastic and wanted to go strike out and be fierce on her own. And she spent the better part of 30 years trying to really, I don't know, fit herself in that box and be someone who she wasn't. It's really odd to think that my mother was on the, uh, the uh, uh, cheerleading squad, and she married the captain of the football team. Uh, no shade to any of that, but that just isn't, isn't my mom. That it's was not her, the woman you knew. Not the, mo- the woman I know. Not, not the woman she is. Like, she was trying to be someone else and that was uh, it took 30 years for of her just like bending over backwards and trying to fit in this box and trying to please everyone around her before she was like this isn't me i've got to go out and uh, nobody is giving me support I, beyond not giving her support they're they're actively you know attacking her when she tries to do anything different and so she, after 30 years she uh broke away from all of that and struck out on her own and started blossoming she became a published author she Uh, her art started taking off she was all of the childhood dreams that she'd had were coming true and she came to this juncture of well what do i really want to do in my life because i'm now able to do anything i want and she looked at everything all of her dreams and she decided that of everything that she could possibly want to be she chose to be my mom
1: so that explains the dedication in your book do you mind if i share it with the listeners go for it Um, You dedicated the book to your mother, The Strongest Woman in the World. You carved out a space for yourself out of a world that offers strong women no quarter. Then, out of everything you could have been, you chose to be my mom. I hope I can live up to you. Yeah. I I get weepy every time I read it.
2: Um, (laughs) Whenever I hear it, I I wrote it. (laughs) I get a little choked up.
1: Well, I think aside from how beautiful this is and what it says about the – Um, part of why you're who you are and doing what you're doing. I also think it reflects um, her story is not unique to her in that there were lots of women who I think had similar experiences. I know my own mother did, that even though she grew up in New York, she was born in the early 40s, and um, she spent a good portion of her early life being what she thought she was supposed to be, and that it was in midlife that she... I think both found herself and found that the world was ready for her and emerged with a strength and a clarity and a sense of her own power in the world that um, nobody would have granted her when she was young. And it's a miracle that we can tell these stories about our moms because and part of that miracle is that they didn't have role models to look up to who told them that this was possible.
2: Exactly. And that's part of the reason for the book is that people it's an erasure of history. There's been women iconoclasts going back to the dawn of time, and many of them are sort of left out of the history books. So you have people who, like my mother, who grow up, who don't, who feel like they're an aberration, that there's some sort of weird mutation, like dead end, evolutionarily speaking, <laughs> that they don't, there's nobody that's ever been like them. There's, so, there's something wrong with them. And they, it's just because they don't have a link to this long chain of women that is really the birthright of, for every single human being, but we've been systematically cut off from. So this is my attempt to try and restore some of that link.
1: I'm talking with the extraordinary Jason Porath, who's the author of the book and founder of the blog, Rejected Princesses, Tales of History's Boldest Heroines, Hellions and Heretics. If you'd like to join the conversation, um, we actually have a treat for you if you do. We're giving out copies of Jason's book today. So give us a call at one 844 Wharton. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we'd like to know one of the extraordinary stories of strong women that you could share with us. In the meantime, Jason, this concept of rejected princesses. Tell me where this title came from.
2: So the, the simple answer is that I needed something to sort of cover the, all the bases. It's basically anybody that I didn't <laughs> think would make the cut for, for uh, animated princess movies. Um, but the larger question is uh, who's doing the rejecting, right? right. Uh, I, as I've argued, it's many times the animation industry have tried to push the envelope, and nearly every single time people have just not gone to see these movies. I could point to, uh, say, Monsters vs. Aliens, which is a Mm -hmm. literal female empowerment movie, which didn't do very well. Uh, Coraline, um, Princess Mononoke. There's there's a, a long history of this. And certainly, I mean, DreamWorks Animation itself was a studio that was founded on the idea of pushing the envelope. The first movie that they did was an all brown person cast that had as a climax of a, the movie the slaying of every firstborn child of e- in Egypt, the prince of Egypt. Mm-hmm. That's an edgy movie. That's, uh, like <laughs> even today, I'm amazed they got made. Uh, but. They didn't do well. None of the stuff that they did, they made a Woody Allen movie for kids called Ants. They did a movie where the mean character didn't talk at all, uh, like 10 years before WALL-E, called Spirit of the Simran. None of these did well until Shrek, and I, it, that institutional memory runs along. Nobody remembers the early days of DreamWorks, but they do. Right. Um, so it is the very unfortunate job of a lot of the people at the top that they have to keep the lights on. And they have to make tough decisions, and they have to do what they think will sell. Maybe not what they personally want to be making, but it is their job to keep everybody there fed and safe and sane. So when there's rejection happening, is it them doing it? Is it the culture at large doing it? Like, who who is doing the, the rejecting here? Is it focus groups? Um, it's more of a question than a statement.
1: Okay. So in other words, these characters – and I see what you – let me back up. First of all, I appreciate that you're giving us the context in which these decisions get made. That while we um, want the filmmakers to be our champion storytellers, and in many ways they are, these are also enormous businesses that are accountable to thousands and thousands of people for millions and millions of dollars. And a misplaced bet can really hurt everyone.
2: Yeah, I've been at these companies after a misplaced better or two came in, and it was like going to a funeral every day for a year. I, it is too much to ask of any single person that they make that choice um, just because you want to see that movie. I mean, that's that's putting hundreds of people's lives on the line. Um, I mean, just in a, a financial sense. It's not like right. holding a gun to their head. But it's still like that is – that's a lot to ask of someone.
1: And so – this is part of why alternate forms of media creation and promulgation are actually really important Absolutely. because you don't have nearly the same bar that you have to jump over. And um, as you note on the website, rejected princesses, these are women too awesome, awful, or offbeat for kids' movies.
2: Exactly. And some of them would not make good kids' movies. I really like – but where where do you get put those their stories? They're, they're stories that are really interesting and should be told, but they're not in – textbooks. They're not in kids' movies. They're not in adult movies. There's no where's the place for them.
1: Right. So I want to describe to the listener. um, The book looks like Um, It should sit on the shelf alongside my daughter's most beloved fairy tale books from her early childhood. It's big. It's hefty. It's hard covered. It's got um, beautiful, detailed lettering on the front, rejected princesses with a crown, um, and inside really wonderful illustrations. And it's presented like a children's book. But it doesn't read that way, Jason. Is this book for kids?
2: Uh, depends on the kid. Okay. Uh, so I've arranged the book in such a way that every chapter has maturity ratings and other content warnings like you would have if you were going to see a movie.
1: Yes, I found and- it very responsible and accurate.
2: Thank you. I, I arranged the entire book so it goes from sort of a PG rating towards R at the back. Uh, most For so the lion's share of it, it's about PG-13. I don't think that it's anything stronger than, say, Greek mythology. Um, but there's a handful of things at the back that aren't gratuitously uh, graphic. It's more... I'm going to not censor history. If I'm going right. to talk about lynching, I'm going to tell you what actually happened. To, like, it, it does a, everybody a disservice. Most, uh, most of all, the women who fought it, uh, their legacy to sort of bauderize and censor what they were really up against. So this is not a book that censors history and really goes into history is is tough and it's ugly. And the people that we put up on pedestals all had flaws and dents and dings, just like you and me.
1: Yeah. In fact, it's one of the things that I appreciated most as I was going through the stories, because some of them, of course, are stories I've never heard. And then others are stories I've heard but never told this fully.
2: Yeah, the the tone of the book is uh, what I aim to do is um, less ivory tower and more I'm telling you this story at a cocktail party because I'm just really excited about it. And like,
1: it's very much Jason telling you this story. It's yeah. very much in your voice. It's very approachable, very funny, and self-referential as you go through it.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I try not to, to take uh... myself too seriously um, i try to i mean i'm always the whoever i'm covering no matter how morally gray they are they're always the hero of their own story so i never have an entry in there that's just a oh what a terrible person and just go off on them um, but I, I, I also try not to uh, be too reverential of the subject either. Everybody is just like, you should be able to take a joke about yourself sort of thing. <laughs> right. And I never try to make it at the expense of their story or, or, or their struggles. I try to I present that in the right context, but you know, the people that they were up against are bad guys. yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna make fun of them.
1: Well, as you go through this though, there's a different kind of structured discipline um, that's really, all through the book, where um, it looks like there's a balance of um, historical figures, mythical figures, and literary figures, and that they have different personalities. Some are heroic, some are villainous, some are both.
2: Yeah. I try not to have anybody who is too much in one direction or another. And there's a lot of people in there that I actually tried to present uh, who uh, actually disliked each other um, (laughs) because – and they're they're both – admirable people who just didn't get along. Uh, Like Nellie
1: Bly and...
2: And Elizabeth Bisland, yeah. the the Two journalists who uh, went around the world in 80 days. Uh, One went east, one went west, and they were in a race against each other. And Nellie Bly, of course, did a a lot of other uh, really important journalism, uh, like exposés of insane asylums and, and terrible treatment therein. Um, but yeah, so those two didn't get along. Uh, Mary C. Cole and Florence Nightingale mm-hmm. didn't get along. Uh, I cover uh, two uh, women of the Qing dynasty, uh, Chu Chin and uh, Yoshiko Kawashima. Uh, Yoshiko Kawashima, despite the Japanese name, was a, a Qing dynasty princess who was raised in Japan. And uh, those two certainly didn't, like, were opposite sides of the, of the same coin. So I try to not have a monolithic view of, of any subject or any people. Uh, And try to have multiple vantage points on the same ideas because we've had a long, rich history and it does it a disservice to boil it down to just black and white, yes or no, good or bad.
1: No, I think the complexity of it is part of what um, gives it so much dimension and makes it so important that the presentation is deceptively playful. You know the the way that the book is designed, Um, but you're telling complicated stories that have in them um, sexual issues, issues of violence, issues of oppression, issues of power, domination um, that reflect both individuals and the cultures they're in. This is not small potatoes.
2: No, I mean I wanted it to be a book of substance, and if you pick it up, it's it's quite literally a substance. It's a pretty heavy book.
1: It absolutely is. So the delightful guy who's produced this incredibly serious and um, complex book is Jason Porath. And the book that we're talking about is Rejected Princesses, Tales of History's Boldest Heroines, Hellions, and Heretics. And if you'd like to join in the conversation and get a copy of Jason's book, you can reach us at 1-844-WARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Jason, one of the things that really intrigued me is... Um, How you did the research for this? How did you learn about all these stories, especially given the way that you parse through different translations of the stories over time?
2: So that was a very difficult sort of learning experience. Uh, I've been at this for about two and a half years now, two and a half, three years. Um, It's been my full-time job. So I've gotten better at it. When I first started, I didn't know what I was doing, and I was basically (laughs) taking Wikipedia as verbatim truth, which don't do that.
1: Yeah, don't do do that.
2: that. Uh, So I would go and try and find the earliest records records of people's stories. And a lot of the people that I write about are so obscure that there's oftentimes only one real source and then others that are variations on that theme. And then I'd try and look up academic uh, research to flesh out the world at the time, like fill in, okay, if I am a Greek in the fifth century and I'm hearing this story, uh, what information do I already know about these people? that I would be filling in the blanks with to sort of uh, flesh it out, because I, I, as someone in the 21st century, don't know anything about, say, the Scythian people uh, who the Amazons were based off of who lived around the Black Sea. Uh, but they would. And so there's a lot of unstated assumptions. And then I go and do the opposition research of people who are like, well, Herodotus was sort of you know, off his nut about a couple things. there was... Or, uh, was you know, kind of a liar about this and that, and what can actually be linked up to other things in time, like other um, events that have been proven to take place at certain times. So it's a lot of different research uh, here and there. And what's interesting about it is that um, the more I do uh, this work and the more people that I cover, the easier it gets because I'll have say researched out the story of ada lovelace or uh of of her 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 dad lord byron and that will be a a touch base that i know certain things is a deep dive of like one spike down into uh, this this era of history so if i do anyone surrounding that i can use that as a a touch base and what's interesting about that is I, i started being able to see connections between all of these different women throughout history how they've actually inspired each other and and taken the torch and taken the baton and kept it running throughout history uh... so whenever possible in this book i've tried to interlink them and say hey uh, did you know that, uh, say, Matahari's mm-hmm. band leader was Nurunayat Khan's dad, that sort of thing?
1: Right, so that we can see how these women are related across cultures and through history. Mm-hmm. How about the translations? Because one of the things now is this where your academic research is paying off? Because it's interesting to note where the translation of language changes the way that we understand a story.
2: Mm. So that, I'm all, often at the mercy of people with far better linguistic abilities than I have. However, I've been doing this for long enough that I've made a number of historian friends who are just fans of the blog, who really <laughs> love love the work, uh, who I can consult for certain things. It's like, is this correct? Am I reading this correct? Uh, I really only speak English and a smattering of Japanese, uh, so I can do a little bit on my own for very limited subjects. But for other people, I will consult, say, uh, I have a friend, uh, John Truitt, who is a um, professor of uh, Latin American history at Central Michigan University, who's such a big fan of the book. That he not only helped out with all the Latin America entries, but he started a class along with uh, another professor uh, Brittany Fremian at, at central Michigan University, a class that uses the rejected princess's book as a textbook.
1: Oh my god, I want to sign up <laughs> isn't
2: it cool That's yeah. really cool and I got to go out and uh, they they were using an early version of the the manuscript as I was finishing it up, and I put out a bounty. To any student in there, of like, if you can find something that's wrong in this book, you get a free copy, uh, assigned, like, I, I will do a dance for you. Whatever, whatever <laughs> it takes. I will give you a certificate saying in perpetuity that you are smarter than I am. And I, I do that. Actually, I, I give out these corrections. It's more important that the work be correct than my ego be intact. Um, and that,
1: and it, and it seems like a real commitment to that. This is work that grows over time and improves from the engagement with your audience.
2: Exactly, and the book itself is sort of one half of all of this. There's a bunch of stuff that I couldn't fit in the book that is online that you can go and see on the website. Here's all the stuff that had uh, deleted scenes. You can think of bonus features <laughs> well, on the DVD. Well,
1: we're going to talk more about that when we get back from the break. I'm talking with Jason Porath, author of Rejected Princesses, Tales of History's Boldest Heroines, Hellions, and Heretics. This is Laura Zarrow with Women at Work on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a minute.
0: You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zaro.
1: Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zara, your host for today's show on alternative role models, rejected princesses, hellions, heroines, and heretics with the author, Jason Porath, who has written Rejected Princesses, Tales of History's Boldest Heroines, Hellions and heretics. We've been talking about how this amazing feminist author, historian emerged, um, why. Uh, this book is so important and valuable and what the stories that are within it can teach us. So we're going to explore all of this and more in our second half hour. Um, but first, I would like to say thanks to William for calling in. We hope you enjoy the book. We're delighted that you love the show and keep on listening. If anyone else is interested in joining the conversation, you can reach us at one 844 That's one 942 And if you call in, you can get one of the few copies we have of this extraordinary book by Jason Porath. So with that, I'd like to say Jason, welcome back to Women at Work.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So before we ended for the, the, you know, took a break for the break, um, we were talking about your blog, which is really was where the book started, but it's also where the book and this whole kind of um, campaign continues to grow. Tell us about how you've approached it over time and the state it's in now.
2: So uh, initially, it was just a very simpler Tumblr blog that just I would do a a simple one image and this is how the the book is, is laid out too I would do uh, uh, one sort of a poster of a movie that's never been made uh, about some uh, heroine like uh, uh, Kutalun, the Mongolian wrestler princess who was uh, Genghis Khan's great-granddaughter or I whomever. loved her, by the way Oh yeah, she's fabulous uh, She shows up in a, a Netflix uh, Marco Polo series, actually <laughs> uh,
1: She's one <laughs> of the, the
2: main characters in that um, although they uh, it, the historical records have her, describe her as a much thicker, like solidly built lady than uh, the, the woman that they cast in she also ends up in the Marco Polo series being kind of a, a love interest as opposed to uh, her own independent person. But anyways, uh, so I would do just the one picture and then a, a, a write-up. And over time, I uh, started integrating more of a citations. I would start putting in footnotes for stuff that were like, here's a digression into the history of, say, a Florent- <laughs> Florentine mercantile <laughs> history or something. It's like, tangentially related, but like as an additional little bit of info to sort of uh, spice it up uh, if if you are interested in a deeper dive. And then uh, over the past couple months, I'd gotten comfortable enough with drawing because I didn't have a drawing background. Despite being at, at DreamWorks, I was more of a uh, physics programmer. I was doing very, very technical uh, sort of animation like fire and, and water simulations. Uh, so I didn't know how to draw, and I was, I was just getting better as I, I went. And I got comfortable enough to start doing fully illustrated entries where the entire entry from start to finish is sort of almost like a comic format. So I've been doing that for a while. I did one very recently about a a Mapuche heroine uh, from uh, Mm -hmm. Chile. Uh, who uh, basically held off the conquistadors for, you know, the, the, the Mapuche held off the conquistadors until the late 1800s, <laughs> the, or the, the, the Western forces until the late 1800s. And she was one of their, their heroines, and they've named naval vessels after her, and I tell her story in that format. But I've told a lot of stories in that format. Um, so, yeah, you've got that. There's a number of filters that you can go in and search through the, the website uh, according to... Um, sort of the morality of the tale, if that's important to you, or the the rating, like PG to R. Um, And there's also a a sort of Google Maps interface, if you're interested in finding people from specific regions of the world. Uh, You can go and uh, I've got all of them sort of laid out as different pins, and there's around 200 of them now, these stories. Um, You can just go and look. And uh, I sort of take it as a to-do list anywhere that there's a blank spot I want to put a pin in. It.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was playing around on it this morning, and it's really incredible. I encourage everyone, go take a look at it. It's at um, you know rejectedprincesses.com. Um, the interface is really easy to navigate. And I love that you can select the different kinds of stories that you want and that, It's also a way to start to see the way that these stories and these characters and people um, fit into different literary categories over time and kind of what the mythological framework is for a lot of these stories. Like, it's fascinating to see how many cultures and how many examples you found of the martial, the warrior.
2: Oh, yeah. There's tons of them. Women have been in in, uh, wars since the dawn of time um and it's 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 not a, a novel thing many people have been debating this even to today as to women's uh, place and ability to do so but i mean i was finding uh you know ahhotep is a uh ancient pharaoh who got the order of the fly for repelling uh invasions on our country and got out and was fighting people. I've not covered her yet, but, like, there's there's numerous other Egyptian heroines from very, very, very far back that um, were doing just that. And
1: Even though many of them, or at least in the stories that I've made it through, because I will confess, I've made it, like, three-quarters of the way through the book. It's thick. There's a lot there. And also, I didn't want to rush it. Like, I'm really yeah. looking forward to reading this over time, um, is... That many, many of the women who engaged in battle um, did so incognito, though, where they were hiding their gender.
2: Yes, uh, for various, I think, most most of them sort of self-obvious reasons. Um, but many of them then kind of once they prove themselves uh, – got rid of the disguise. Uh, Petra Herrera, who's a, a soldadera of the uh, Mexican Revolution, uh, initially uh, started fighting under the name Pe- uh, Pedro. Uh, and after several battles and getting uh, promoted a little bit, she sort of uh, took off her, her hat and shook loose her braids. And I uh, was like, surprise, I'm a woman. <laughs> and now I'm going to lead uh, two, three, 400. The estimates sort of vary depending on the source. Uh, Women in my own battalion, and I'm going to look over them like a a mother bear and any any dudes who come in and try to start something with these women, uh, I will shoot you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, but she earned her stripes and then she could come out. So I'd like to interrupt for a second because we have Linda calling in from Michigan. Linda, thank you so much for calling Women at Work. What's on your mind today?
0: Well, I just wanted to say how inspired I am listening to Jason talk about his book. I have not been a reader in my life
1: well, Linda, we are delighted that you're enjoying the show, that you're listening and that you called in. I hope you enjoy the copy of the book. Um, so hold on. Patty's going to take your information. We're going to keep talking about stuff. Um, I'm glad to know you're out there. I hope you've been enjoying. Um,
2: so, Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to hear.
1: <laughs> um, so, Jason, one of the other themes that I kept seeing come out um, was of the daughter of of the knight, the daughter of the king, who it's time for her to marry. Mm -hmm. And she goes incognito in a competition that's meant to um, identify her suitor, but instead to actually earn the right to either... Choose her own suitor or not have one at all. It reminds me, my favorite, the most familiar version of this, which is dear to my heart, is Atalanta from Free to Be You and Me or The Princess Knight, which is a book I read to my daughter over and over again. Mm. So where have you been finding these?
2: So um, my favorite one, I I mentioned uh, briefly uh, earlier, was uh, the Mongolian wrestler princess, uh, (laughs) Kudalun, who basically had one rule, is that if you uh, wanted to marry her, you had to best her in wrestling. But if you lose, you owe her 100 horses.
1: I love that. She ended up
2: unmarried (laughs) with 10,000 horses. (laughs) Um, And her story was actually then spun off. There's another, uh, there's an Italian opera called Turandot. That uh, is based off of that. That instead of wrestling, it's uh, games of wit, and it sort of ends up becoming, from what I understand, I've, I've not I've seen *Torn or read it, but from my my understanding, is more of a uh, you know, a woman who is in love with someone despite herself, and uh, it, it, it sort of mutilates the character mm-hmm. from the historical roots. And there's certainly a lot of other uh, instances of this sort of thing. It is a, a trope, definitely, throughout history of, say, the the woman who's who's locked up. and um, But I I keep finding instances where she just sort of sets out on her own. Uh, there's a, a Viking pirate princess named Alfhild, or Ahwild. it's I'm not sure how to pronounce it. They,
1: these are hard things to pronounce. It's part yeah. of why I'm not saying a lot of them on the air. <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't, I don't know how to pronounce a lot of these. I've only seen them written, but I'm doing my best. Uh, <laughs> so she was uh, sort of uh, Rapunzel-style locked up in this tower, and uh, her dad basically said anybody who wants to uh marry her has to get past all the guards and she's got uh, serpents that are guarding her and all sorts of things. And this guy does so. And she's like, instead of marrying this guy, I'm going to go become a pirate. And she does. And the guy spends (laughs) years following her around being like, wait, you're supposed to marry me. And she's like, nope, no time for that. I'm pirating.
1: And what's so funny is that aside from how novel it is and that it defies his expectations, um, it speaks to a power that she has all on her own. Um, by the way, if you'd like to join in the conversation or actually try and get one of Jason's extraordinary books, um, you can give us a call at one Wharton. That's one 844 942 I don't know if you're familiar with it. Rebecca Traster wrote a fabulous book called Single Ladies. And it really, um, it's a very um, dense, well-researched, very smart book that talks about what a radical thing it is in our society For a woman to not be defined by what state of attachment she's in, that um, through history and through many of the princess stories that we've heard, we are either in preparation for a husband, in pursuit of the husband, with the husband, or post-husband. We're never just ourselves. And you found all of these heroines who, by hook or by crook, they were going to be their own people and shape their own world, and they weren't defined by their relationship to a man.
2: Yeah, and you'll find uh, recurrent themes throughout where people just freak out and don't know how to deal with that. <laughs> um, the, the one that really jumps out to me, and this is an entry that I I've started online. It's in the book as well. It's, it's towards the back because it's one of the, the more difficult entries, but it's a woman named Elizabeth Bathory, who is the primary, one of the primary inspirations for Dracula and ostensibly, as legends go, the uh, most prolific female serial killer in history. Wow. Wow. Um, I make the argument that she was framed. I don't think that she was a particularly nice lady. I think that there's definitely some servants who, you know, uh, she had many, many servants the uh, age before penicillin, and she was, again, not a nice lady. So there's certainly many that died in her care, but not not the, like, bizarre cartoonish supervillain things that uh, she's ascribed to. I mean, they, they talk about her bathing in blood and other ridiculous, hoary uh, tales. But what it boils down to for her is that, she was basically a Hungarian Kennedy. She had more money than the emperor. She had uh, – her husband had died. She was a woman with no sort of controls on her, as, as uh, other people would have looked at it. Uh, there's, there's, She was old, uh, experienced politically, very rich, and – There were a lot of political goings on at the time that were – her cousin was sort of agitating to take over the throne um, starting a civil war. And so I make the case – and I think that there's a lot to it – that all of this crazy story about how horrible she was was cooked up to just – destroy her reputation and take her out politically, because they just couldn't deal with a politically powerful widowed woman who they couldn't figure any way to control her.
1: Gosh, does this sound at all familiar?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, there <laughs> are parallels to modern day.
1: Right, but I think it really means that um, there's his, throughout history that um, powerful women, strong women, complicated women. Um, We have a hard time as societies and cultures knowing what to do with them. And the way that we transcribe them to history um, either simplifies them um, or makes them overly extreme.
2: Absolutely. There's a a really good book that I I read through a million times in my research by Antonia Fraser called The Warrior Queens that goes through and records, uh, it goes into extreme depth uh, on many different women uh, going all the way from uh, Boudica of the Esseni, who was first century England, all the way to, I think, Margaret Thatcher was the most recent person that they, they cover. There's women in power and how they are talked about. And she points out running themes of uh, how their voice was described as very, uh, you know, melodic or harsh. Uh, how their dress style was uh, alluring, uh, you know, uh, made men's senses go wild or, or, you know, they dressed like a man and were improper. Is the is there sort of Goldilocks too hot, too cold on, on every right. single part.
1: As if all women being. are measured by how far we veer from the ideal of being beautiful and cooperative.
2: Exactly. And you'll find multiple accounts uh, of the same person some of which laud and some of which uh, are less laudatory and they'll they'll take the exact same thing of like say their voice and one will be like oh she had this beautiful singing voice and like this commanding and the other like will literally use the word bark uh, to describe how this person talks. And you can see that to modern day, to how people yes. treat various politicians or public figures, just women in the media. It's all about, like, well, you know, they trust too much this way or the, too much that way. It's, you have to walk this, this very fine tightrope of, like, the Goldilocks zone of not too much to the left, not much to the right, just, just exactly right.
1: How did um, your growing awareness of this inform the way that you did the illustrations in the book?
2: Um, I was always sort of a, a sympathy for uh, the characters, but I would try and and come up with better and better visual metaphors for the struggles that they were going through like if there's only going to be one image I mean it was like a poster for a movie that's never been made. I try and figure out well what is what is the central struggle of this woman's life and try and view it through her eyes. And really work that into the illustration and and have a, a visual representation as best I can in, in one image of like what they were fighting against or, or what was what was the, the struggle that they had and how would they have approached it. Um,
1: um, would you mind if I'm going to mention one of the stories in the book, and you can tell me it's okay if you don't recall them because you now have written like hundreds and hundreds of these. <laughs> but it was Gracia Mendes Nasi, the savior of the Jews.
2: Yes, I love her.
1: Could you tell us her story a little bit? Because I also thought the illustration um, represented it
2: really beautifully. So Gracia Minas Nasi is this very little-known figure from the Inquisition um, who, when the Inquisition uh, popped up, she was in Portugal, and she was a, a Jew and uh, very, very wealthy, uh, and ended up taking over the family business, which was running a mercantile emperor, empire across virtually the entire Mediterranean, like almost all of Europe. She was ungodly wealthy. So uh, she was a, a
1: really early CEO.
2: Early, early CEO. And she managed to sort of use that position to get a bargaining power over um, – I think it was a Charles V of Portugal, uh, who uh, was the, the counterpart to Ferdinand and Isabella uh, for the Inquisition. And so she – and it, she had the Pope sort of uh, wrapped around her because she was funding them. They were very, like, bad with money. Um, and so she was – Basically, the Schindler for the Inquisition, she was funneling all of these, these uh, Jews. She had this whole pipeline using her mercantile uh, empire, um, getting them out from the Inquisition areas over to Italy and then to the Ottoman Empire, where uh, it was okay for them to be outwardly Jewish. So uh, almost the entire Sephardic um, Jewish population nowadays owes their existence to Gracia mendes Nasi.
1: To so the fact that she helped get everybody out
2: yeah but she also had to outwardly present as uh, Christian for most mm-hmm. of the time her, She didn't even go by the the name Gracia mendes nasi for most of her life that was her 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 jewish name uh, she had a, a, a Beatriz laluna or de Luna who was, that was her christian name uh so the illustration for her um has her outwardly presenting like a, a number of of gold uh cross stamped coins and uh, wearing a very prominent uh, golden cross, but then hidden throughout this illustration are a number of silver uh, coins with, that have Jewish stars on them. There's 18 of them, mm-hmm. because 18 is a, a, a sacred number in the uh, Jewish faith, uh, and a lot of different little callbacks to the various things that she did in her time. She tried starting a Jewish state in the 1500s in Tiberias, Israel. Um, She was thought by some to be the Messiah in in her time. Um, She was a really tremendously important person that uh, her contribution is virtually unknown.
1: Absolutely. For as often as, you know, because it's also part of my family's tradition. We hear about the Inquisition, the Jews who went undercover, the Jews who then, you know, sought atonement for having to pretend that they weren't Jewish. Nowhere have I ever heard her story before.
2: She Her story's been virtually unknown until about 100 years ago, as best I, I can tell.
1: And, and for many of us, until we cracked open your book. Yeah. One of the things that, well, we were talking before about the tone of your writing and how it feels modern, it has your voice in it, you link all these stories together, and you talk in um, very contemporary, respectful terms about these women's sexuality and um, the different forms that it took and when it was known, suspected, and not known. Um, how did it present itself on, um, in your work and in the research? How did you find out this stuff?
2: So it's always a very slippery slope to try and graft modern ideas of gender and sexuality onto the past, um, because they didn't think in the same terms we do, and certainly we're not going to think in the same terms, uh, say, the culture will in 100 years. Mm-hmm. So uh, doing a one-to-one translation is always very difficult. That said, there's always a number of uh, you know, instances of, of the way people talk. There's, you, you read enough, and you start being able to read between the lines and pick up what people at the time would have been picking up from that writing.
1: And so it seems like what you saw in your sources were um, people alluding to the oddity of their sexuality, even if they weren't discussing it openly and accepting it as we do now.
2: Exactly. Or there, there'd be very odd ways of, of describing things that you'd have to sort of work backwards <laughs> from. I've got a number of trans figures in the book, uh, one of whom was a, a Native American woman named Osh who uh, most Native American cultures believed in uh, three to seven genders. They didn't believe in sort of a binary gender system. Uh, and so I, I, I cover her story, uh, and you have to sort of reconstruct it not only from – Uh, the crow tellings but a lot of it from the uh missionaries tellings and they don't really have the exact same vantage point so to speak
1: yeah they're going to tell that story very differently by the way we have some stories to share with you um caroline's calling from maryland caroline thank you so much for calling women at work what's on your mind
0: Hi, what a great show. Um, I have a, just a, a, a quick story, but also a really big question for Jason. And maybe if I could start with a question, it might take all my time. <laughs> um, but I have a book coming out in June on grit. And, um, and one of the findings I have from all of my interviews with lots of men and women who fit the definition of what I call authentic grit when I asked them somewhere in the interview, well, where did you learn this behavior? Where did you learn this mindset? Where did you, you know, um, figure out that, you know, quitters never win and winners never quit, so on and so forth? Spontaneously, every single person, male or female, named a woman role model. Every uh-huh. one of them. And I got, you know, through most of my interviews before I realized there was a pattern there. And um, I'm wondering why you think spontaneously people would name a woman as a gritty role model more readily than they'd name a man?
1: That's a great question, Caroline. Jason?
2: Um, oh, yeah, that is a great question. Thank you. So I would say that it's, I think, more obvious to like the, the, the magnitude of things that women have been up against in history. I think they, they have a, a much larger background of stuff that is working against them a lot of the time. And so the the sheer magnitude of their struggle uh, can go uh, to a, an enormous degree, and so when you see someone who's really struggling, and you are able to understand where they're coming from, and often, and everybody's got a mother, and everybody like almost like throughout history, I think women have done a, a lot of the the raising, and people have, have been able to identify with them perhaps more easily than you know distant men who are you know wandering <laughs> off and doing whatever. Um, for, in, 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 a lot of Western cultures, at least, it is very extremely Say if you get to African cultures, but, um, that, that, I think you're able to identify with it more and the magnitude of the, the struggle is, is greater, but I, I absolutely see what you're saying to, um, one of the illustrations in the book is uh, of this woman, Christine de Pizan, who was uh, arguably history's first feminist. She was a contemporary of Joan of Arc. She was a author who her husband died, and she's like, well, I'm just going to make it on my own, and uh, was a female author who uh, was so delighted the courts that she had a, a whole uh, literary career. And so... The illustration that I did for her was based off of one of the books that she did uh, called The Book of the City of Ladies, uh, where she actually lays out all of her female role models, uh, mythical and historical. And it's very similar, actually, to the book that I wrote, um, in that it was just sort of like, here's all these amazing people. Why don't we know more (laughs) about them? Why aren't they more lauded? And so the illustration I did of, of her takes the central metaphor of her book, The Book of the City of Ladies, uh, where she talks about the Amazons making up the gates and the Saints making up the temples and yada yada, and uh, actually has her it's a double page spread, making a model city out of every person in the book, like as, as like a, on a big table. She just got them laid out and is sort of placing them out into the temples, into the Colosseum, into the walls and all that. So uh, it's been going on for a while. Everybody <laughs> Indeed. everybody else.
1: And also, Jason, part of what I appreciate about your response and also about Caroline's observation is that I think it is a recognition of um, the challenges that are out there for women and the extraordinary accomplishment of those women who work past them so caroline thank you so much for calling women at work we're delighted you've been listening and for other callers who are queued up we're sorry we don't have time today but we're so delighted you called in um hang on because patty's going to get to you you get the book as we promised um jason i can't thank you enough for a for joining us on women at work but also for giving all of the us this book i can't wait to give it to my daughter i've got colleagues who are dying to get it so really thank you for everything that you're doing and thanks for joining us on the show
2: Thanks for having me. It's been a delight.
1: Um, I'd also like to thank, of course, my producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dan Baker, our fabulous production assistant, Allie Freed. Um, our schedule of replays can be found on the SiriusXM website. That's www.siriusxm.com backslash business radio. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 111. I'm Laura Zarrow, and tune in next week, where we talk more about how we can help women women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon.